Welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology founder, investor, and VC at Portfolio Ventures. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. This podcast is all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. This week's episode is with Jan Safati, co-founder and CEO at UserLed. UserLed helps products sell themselves by initiating product-led growth journeys. Jan was previously at Instant.io, where he was head of sales and knows firsthand how time-consuming chasing small clients can be. In this episode, we cover the forming of user-led, reflecting on prior startup attempts and how they shape your next company, hiring sunshine people, and loads of other really amazing tips and insights for founders and investors. Let's get started. Hi, Jan. Welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. It's great to have you on. Great to be on. Thank you very much for inviting me, James. So, Jan, maybe we could start with just a background on what you did in the lead up to founding UserLed. Yeah, I did a couple of things. So, I started my career in sales, actually. And when at Salesforce, I realized that half of my time was spent chasing very small deals that didn't really require my time. And you see it nowadays, right? When companies like Salesforce are laying off a lot of the staff simply because they realize that you can automate a large part of of the sales work. After that, I decided to test myself on the startup ground and I launched my first company called Revive. And the goal was very simple. We wanted to enable folks graduating out of boot camps, uh, tech boot camps to find job opportunities in an easy fashion. You'd realize that today, yes, you have all these boot camps for tech grads, but for them to compete with the tech workforce that's coming out of engineering degree is very, very hard. So the goal was to enable them to feel like they were ready for the work, simply connecting them with mentors and jobs that were actually fit for their skills. And after that, I joined an amazing team at Incident.io by Stephen, Chris, and Pete, where I was basically leading sales for about a year, helping them from seed to series A, closing a lot of, of the deals that's with the logos that they have today. It was an amazing experience, just learning how you build a product that people actually love. You know, it's actually interesting how they manage in an unsexy space to build a solution that appeared very compelling to a very tailored persona, which are the SRE leader of this world and make so much noise in such a quick amount of time. And you know how in startup, you feel the pull. And when you don't feel the pull, you need to be very honest with yourself. And for them, I felt the pull the first day I joined, even before. And now I'm sure they're going to keep on riding this wave. And towards the end, I also realized the problems that we were having. You know, when you are a solution that enables leads to come through the door in a, you know, like in a freemium fashion in the town, or just with a trial, you realize that a lot of these leads fall through the crack and don't convert from premium to paid. Very often you realize that you have lots of visitors, but they do not convert to users. So how do you enable that in an automated fashion? And while that incident, I started thinking about different way of solutioning that problem. And that's what we're doing today at UserLed, enabling that flawless conversion throughout the funnel 
with automation in products that don't nudge the user, but accompany the sale in a very authentic, genuine fashion without the need for people and humans simply. And what are some examples of that? So what are some of the flows that our listeners who no doubt buy plenty online would be used to seeing in e-commerce and retail that you're bringing in an automated way or an off-the-shelf way to B2B SaaS? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one example that I think about quite a lot is very often you would have gone onto a website, you like a gene, right? For example, you've gone Massimo Duty and you like this gene, where it's 200 pounds, it's a bit too expensive right now. You come back three days a week later and then you realize that there is a prompt with a 25% discount and then boom, you're like, ah, actually that's fitting my budget. This is simply because they can follow you across their website, across your life cycle and can trigger a particular action based on your reaction or non-action. And that's what we do for B2B SaaS companies at any step of the funnel. So I give you another example. For us, if you come back three times to my pricing page, I seem to understand that you have some questions or that you do not understand my pricing. Therefore, I'm going to push you toward the journey so that you book a call with one of my rep so that I give you more explanation towards the pricing so that I send you a video that's tailored to your need uh, based on the pricing that I can explain to you in a simpler fashion to convert you towards being a user. And you mentioned feeling that pull uh incident, the pull from customers who are desperate to use the product. Can you talk to us about what stage you're at with user-led at the moment and whether you're feeling that pull or is it too early for that at the moment? I think we're at the baby stage, right? We're at the stage where we need to be very honest with ourselves. Like we started building the solution about five months ago, very early on, we started with mockups, with design partners that were feeling a strong pain at converting premium to premium, converting visitors to users. We've listened to, to these particular problems and we've tried to replicate that into a solution that's really fit for purpose. We launched our beta only five or six days ago now, booked a, a huge amount of calls. But right now, I can't tell you, it would be dishonest for mine to tell you whether we have this product love. And I don't believe we will have for another few months till we actually go deep into the analytics, understand what the haha moments are and where people actually fall in love with what we build. And already from a week of work, the feedback we got was just great, but also pinpointing elements that we didn't even think about, as you can imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think freemium is a really interesting space to go after because often freemium SaaS is kind of mass market SaaS units, often low ACV, low annual contract value and and high volume. And so even a marginal improvement to conversion rate can have an absolutely huge impact on on revenue. So I think, and it's kind of easy to plug in, should be a relatively self-serve sale, all of these good good things that kind of lend themselves to a product like user-led. Absolutely. And I think like PLG, or non-PLG or, you know, sales assist, all this terminology that are coming at the moment. I don't even like acronym myself. I like simple stuff. And you see all this PLG CRM being born in the US, the like of Endgame, all of these guys. And I think what they're doing is great. I just think it's too complex, personally. I like simple things. I like the idea of building out a journey from no integration at the start to implement an SDK and based on 
you know, simple journey at the beginning, like three times on the pricing page, I push you a prompt. Then you start personalizing your journeys even more because you see the value from the get-go uh, without having to connect your CRM, understanding what fields you need to connect in order to uh, notify the relevant rep. The goal for us is to simplify this trend that's going on in the market and enable the mortal, the ones that are not the mirror figma notion of this world to access similar types of journey. Because you would hear a lot of company are like, we're doing enterprise sales, therefore PLG is not for us. Or uh, we, don't, we can't do this automation because it doesn't make sense, right? In the large sales cycles, but actually could cut the sales cycle by half just by doing a little tiny bits of things that help with ADM and so on. So, so yeah, I think it's an exciting space. It's a space where there is a lot of noise and the winner will not help current PLG companies to become more efficient in their PLG landscape, but the ones who think they're not to transition in a very easy fashion. Yeah, and Jan, you've built a solid community as well, which you've got almost 500 members on a Slack and you've put quite a big emphasis on you know, building a community around before you maybe even have product market fit. What was the thinking behind that? Was that a learned behavior from a previous company? Or was that something that is new to you? And how important is that community element to maybe this education piece of sort of educating people that aren't obvious customers that this is something for them? Yeah, I think me and my co-founder, Tristan, started you know in a space that was very different we started in the community space where we were helping these bootcamp graduates connect with mentors connect with job offers and realized the power of community the power of having a group of people that believe in what you do early on just with a single line of a messaging and we were basically doing outbound campaign at the start of my previous company, Revive, that was saying, hey, look, you're a bootcamp graduate. Do you have a hard time finding your next job? There are a few people like you. And on the other end, we're reaching out the same way to mentors and creating a community of mentors in product design and then in engineering and so on. And we saw from there what was the problem from listening to these folks, from listening to the conversation that were happening in the community, from feeling the pain of people that were actually complaining on our Slack, that was the best way for us to start building a product. So when we started building in the B2B SaaS space, we thought, actually, that's not so different. People have a pain, they want to complain about it, they want to state what, where they're spending most of their time and, and what they want to solve, let's listen to them first. And we build this community ahead of writing a single line of code. I don't believe that today you should start building without having the approval of the masses. Practicing what your name preaches, user-led, user-led by name, user-led by nature. I think it's harder to talk about the previous companies that haven't worked out so well, clearly, than the ones that have been successes. But I think it's something that we should lift the lid on a little bit more. And you know, I think people actually can celebrate the companies they've started that haven't worked out because there are so many lessons in those journeys. So I wonder, are you happy to talk a bit about what went wrong at Revive and what mistakes you made and what you learned? Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is so much more interesting, actually. The reality is that I was personally coming from a huge company. I was coming from Salesforce and you're not hands-on after four years at Salesforce. I, I wasn't personally. I 
you know, I started looking at managing people and already most of your day-to-day is done by other people. And it felt very strange to me to get back to the basin and having to do everything myself, finding a team myself, building processes myself, outreaching by myself, like coming back to just the basics. That was very hard. And also, I think that at some point, what we did is that we heard too much noise. We realized that people needed a community in order to feel more surrounded in their job search process. We also were trying to build a mentorship platform and seeing people who were actually trying to do the same at ADPDs, but focusing just on the mentorship. So we had a community plus mentorship on the side. Plus at some point we were like, oh, OTA is doing very well on this simple job search. Let's also go after job search because the tree mix very well together. So by chasing the community, the mentorship, the job search, we were completely lost at some point. We had the beginning of something very good that we lost along the way because we were trying to do too many things, as many founders do, simply. And as a first-time founder, I just was lacking focus. And if I was lacking focus, my team was as well. And we started having conversations that were going left, right, center. And I think that was the best lesson I could ever learn with my co-founder, Tristan, today, because right now we are over-focused, I would say. Which is good, but sometimes we should be a bit more risk-free. But that was the biggest reason of this failure. And also, I would say that the second reason was to only look at skills. We were hiring people that were amazing, very, very strong in their day-to-day. But we're missing sunshines. Like I like to call these people sunshines. The people that come in that are super pumped about any problem that you throw at them. The problem, the people that are going to smile, no matter the moment you are in the journey, whether it's painful or whether it's easy, they're always going to be steady and keen to get going. And I think Stephen Whitworth from Incident describes it quite well, people that are okay with chaos. And sometimes you have A-star players that you bring into your team. They're amazing in the good times. When the bad times come and they come, they know where to be found. And I think these are the two biggest lessons I learned. Do you think the A-star players who get put off when things aren't going well, could it be that the A-star players, the really smart people, recognize when there's no future and they're like, right, it's time to get out. But in another company, every company, even successful ones, go through peaks and troughs. But in a great company, if it had strong prospects do you think an a-star player would recognize and would pick themselves up i think you have it's two different things you have the loyalty element and the fighting spirits when you have the loyalty element and the fighting spirit in an a-star player you find your unicorn and you shouldn't care about how much you pay this person or how much equity you give i think when you have an a-star player that's just an a-star player you will realize when something is going wrong and probably just get out now is it an A-star player or is it just a, an A-? minus? I think it's a good question. I think the reality is that when you join a seed stage, you need to be prepared for failures. You need to be prepared for tsunamis. You need to be prepared to pivot. You know, we launched the beta last week and in a week, my co-founder and I were very 
uh, clear that there was just a, a tiny problem that we were focusing on too many elements of the funnel at the beginning of the funnel, converting visitors into users and then premium to paid. But these are two completely different personas, right? One is the product marketing, marketing folks, and the other one is going to be more towards you know, like the, the actual AE or the person that's a bit later on in the funnel. So you're talking to too many personalized tasks to make too much noise. And, and you realize that you need to make changes very quickly. And my team, when I told them we need to make changes there, they were super excited. They were not mad. They, they were just like super keen to make changes. And I think that's why Tristan and I are very good now at hiring a player that also are super loyal and super keen for, you know, the tsunami that comes sometime. And Jan, have you added anything to your hiring process that you think specifically helps identify sunshine people? Yeah. So first of all, coming from incidents, they were hiring product engineers. So people that are not only amazing software engineers, but that also have a very strong gut feeling about product, right? But also people that could speak the same language as the users and be working very much hand in hand with operations, while also people that are super keen to organize you know, dinner sometimes for the team, make sure that we organize, how do you say, uh, getaways with the team and so on. And you can feel these people during the interview. You can, you can spot the people that just talk for the sake of talking and will give you the answers you want. And the people who actually have done that in other companies. And you can ask this simple question, oh, really, you organized this. What, what was it? You know, how many people came? What was the outcome? Did you feel like you lifted the team spirit? And how? How did you measure that? And I think if you start asking this question that these people out of their comfort zone because they don't expect that at an interview, especially for these particular types of role where you hire for seed stage, especially on the product side, you can spot the people who are extremely communicative and part of the team and have a very strong team spirit. Because it's easy to say that you are, but harder to actually prove it with facts. So we, we do background checks as well. I actually confirmed that. I'm like, okay, did, did, she, did she actually organize that? Or did he actually do things for the team? If so, why? Was he coming at team drinks? You know, this sort of thing that I didn't realize before. But now that I have my own company and I had before, you realize that just the presence of people to come to the office as we have now once a day is, a, is, a, is rare. You don't have that many folks like this anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very apparent that you've learned a lot from that previous business revive and i wonder i mean what what was the emotional journey as as founder of a business that you realized there wasn't a future for how do you cope with that and pick yourself back up for the next business it's, it's a very good one because i think i probably faced a bit of depression at that moment i was a bit depressed and i think so we were three three co-founder me tristan ziar and we did this post-mortem all together. And we were also the closest folks, right? We were living in Costa Rica together towards the end of COVID. They were part of my family. We were all living together under the same roof in the south of France for a long time. And it was more the end of a very, very good period for all of us. But we had to be honest with ourselves. And I think my way of getting back up was, first of all, I was... You, you can't underestimate the importance of having people around like your girlfriend at the time and people who actually love you 
act unconditionally in order to to tell you that you're going to be okay, that things are going to be fine, and that you are worthy of what you want to build and that you're worthy of the entrepreneur lifestyle. But also you need to be very honest with yourself. Like, were you ready at the start of this journey to be an entrepreneur? Was I ready when I left Salesforce? I wasn't. I really wasn't. And I think I wasn't strong enough mentally. I wasn't strong enough operationally neither. And I think that's why when I chose the role afterwards, which was to join the folks at, at Incidents, I went there to learn. I went there because I didn't know what it meant to build a product that people love. I went there because I wanted to offer my help and make sure that I could help these guys sell a lot of a product that people keep talking about. And then when I left, I left strong. I left as a different person. And now we're just on the on the roller coaster and it feels like it's a very good wave to ride. I think that's that's great. It's quite inspiring that because I think there'll be a lot of people that have either had a business fail or or maybe in a situation where they're worried their business may fail and there is life afterwards. And did you feel at the time your personal brand was associated with your company? And so the company failed, you'd failed. And then this time, are you doing anything slightly different to sort of almost, you're Jan, you're the founder of user-led, but your success is not, do you know what I mean? Not so like closely associated with the company. Because I think that's also one thing that a lot of young founders do is they think, I'm going to be known for this company for the rest of my life. And the reality is most people will forget about it six months after it's failed. So... Yeah, how are you trying to think about like that as personal association? I don't think about it too much. I I don't care. I remove this noise from my head. If I fail, like if we fail this company with Tristan, and I don't think we will because we have all the cards in our hand not to. Um, it's not the end of the world. Uh, we're just building software. <laughs> we're not saving lives. And, to, and regarding this element of association, I think you just shouldn't care. I want to move on to a, another topic, which is whether salespeople and ex-salespeople are great founders to back. The thesis being, as a founder, you need to be able to persuade people. You need to be able to sell your vision to investors, your vision to customers. You need to persuade people to join you in the early days when there's nothing. How important is the ability to persuade and sell to a startup founder? Are salespeople great founders to back? I'm investing myself. Never invested in a salesperson. Like, <laughs> I, I never did. And I'm going to be very honest here. I never considered myself a salesperson. Uh, when I was at Salesforce, I was in sales. I was social engineering and account executive and sales management. Never thought that sales was an actual skills. I think it's something, yes, you can develop and so on. But I have a hard time just backing salespeople. I think they need to prove by A plus B that they can do product, that they understand engineering, that they talk their language, that they understand product love. So I think care more about being very true to yourself. Do you have something amazing? And if you don't just go back at work, it's been so great talking to you. I think. What I've really picked up is that you have had some very meaningful experience at previous companies that has led to a very slick execution of what you're doing so far. 
and a very clear view of where you want to take it, which I think is brilliant. And there's lots of useful information in there for other founders who are probably going through a lot of similar things. As you know, we like to wrap up our episodes with our dinner party guest game. So if you could have dinner with any three people, who would they be? Okay, so I think the first one is Professor Zen Kui Shen, who is the father of acupuncture. And the reason why is simple. I've had migraines for a very long time, since an unfortunate snowboard accident that led me to have some of the worst horrible nerve pain you can think of for many years. And I discovered alternative medicine because modern medicine couldn't do anything for me. And now I'm super happy to say that I reduced the number of migraines to almost just once a month, don't have neck pain anymore. The other person is, don't laugh, but it's actually Brad Pitt because I... I've been a fan of cinema since my early childhood. The first film, the first movie I watched was actually Zorro when I was six, or I can't remember. But the movies of Brad Pitt in the 90s and the 2000s, which are some of the best movies ever made to me. And then I would say Charlie Theron, not because of her acting game, because I saw during COVID a scene that traumatized me in London, where a woman was getting beaten up by a man outside of the subway station. And I witnessed this sort of violence in front of me from a man to a woman and the distress of a woman that I helped at the time. And it was the first time I was confronted to that. And she launched, she, she's now a domestic abuse leader. She launched a program to help this woman across Africa. So yeah, I feel like she would be someone amazing to talk to because I think as as men, it's easy to just forget. And I feel a bit ashamed that I had to be confronted to that firsthand in order to realize how, how horrible it is for, for women who are in the situation. And, um, and yeah, it just really, really touched me. And yeah. Yeah, I think that's amazing. Great reasons there as well. I mean, I think you get three points for three original guest picks, which is awesome all very personal to you and they're brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing those. My pleasure. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns, which is another great way to get every episode direct to your inbox. Please tell your friends about it and engage with us on social media and we'll see you on the next episode.